turn the mic on. Well, this morning we have the joy of returning to our study of the Book of Romans, a series we began uh, about a year ago, uh, would have been the week after Labor Day uh, in 2019, a year ago, or as we've experienced dog years, seems like seven years ago now since uh, we've all been sheltering for some degree for quite a while. Uh, but we had to suspend the series when we suspended our services, and it didn't seem right to just continue plugging along uh, while we were experiencing so much uncertainty. Uh, but we've been looking forward to this day, the day that we could come back and to look at this magisterial letter, some who would claim it to be the most important book in the Bible, which is a hyperbole because there's no one book more important than another, uh, but it does show the significance. It is certainly the greatest theological treatise that has ever been written. And what is often not recognized is that it was originally written not as a theological book, but as a missionary support letter. Uh, needless to say, uh, uh, we gain a lot from all of God's word, and we gain a tremendous understanding, uh, and we are on sure ground when we understand our faith because of what the Apostle Paul has shared with us in this letter. This morning we come to Romans chapter 8, which is the apex of this declaration of the gospel. Everything that is written prior to Romans 8 is pointing to this. It's leading us up to this. It's preparing us to hear the good news that is in this chapter. And this chapter is so packed that people have taken quite some time. Martin Lloyd-Jones took nearly a year in this chapter alone. Uh, and to do what uh, I hope to do in 30 minutes or so this morning. Uh, then, not only does everything lead up to it, everything flows from it as well. Now, we won't be there for a couple of weeks, but in, in Romans 9 uh, through Romans 11, Paul gives an explanation of something he says later in Romans chapter 8. In other words, he makes a statement realizing there's people that might misunderstand that, so he gives a three-chapter explanation. Then he picks up again in Romans 12 with another therefore, and therefore is pointing back to the truth of the gospel as is proclaimed here in Romans 8, and for the rest of the letter until he begins to close it out with his personal greetings. He applies, he shows us how we are to live in light of the truth that we study and we see in this chapter. So let's come to this word, Romans chapter 8. We'll begin our reading in verse 1. Continuing through verse 17. Hear the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. 
but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of our God, let's pray. Our Father, we do come with thanksgiving for this day that you have commanded that we set aside to be restored and to be renewed to rest, to rest not only from labors, but to rest in your grace. Give thanks also for this word that instructs us, that shapes our understanding and therefore our lives. And pray now that you, by your spirit, would speak to us, bringing this word to light and bringing life to this word in us and in one another. Lord, may you be at work continuing what you have begun in accordance with your promise. Shape us and change us in mind in attitude, and in life, we pray to the glory of your name, through Christ. Amen. What difference does Jesus' death and resurrection make in your thinking, in your speaking, and in your living? How does the, this historic fact or these historic facts of his death and his resurrection shape your, your hopes and your desires and your, your dreams? And how does it have an effect on your fears and your worries? What does the good news do in you? How has it made a difference day by day and moment by moment? And why have we not seemed to have experienced more transformation because of this gospel? Why do most of us feel like we regularly fail? That we don't live up to our own aspirations and we're certain that we don't live up to what God would have us to be and to do. Well, we have come to this chapter of Romans 8, but we need to see it in light of what Paul has already said that is at the end of Romans chapter 7. 
Because at the end of Romans chapter 7, we hear the apostle make what seems perhaps as a, a surprising confession, and then he follows it up with an impassioned cry. What Paul says in, in Romans 7 is, I don't understand myself. I don't understand my own actions. I, I don't do the things that I want to do, and the very things that I hate, I do those things. And then he follows that up with this, this, this anguished cry, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? What Paul is expressing there is the heart cry of every person who is honest about themselves and is still a follower of Jesus Christ. We all experience this difficulty. We all experience this hardship uh, in our lives, uh, or, or, or we all experience these, these periods or times or, or even seeming constantly uh, these failures and, and these, these struggles. And we need to see Romans 8, what is declared there against the backdrop of, of that reality. Now, for some of you, this idea, Paul's heart cry and his confession, may be news to you. You are aware that you struggle, but you had no idea that other people around you struggle, and you certainly had no idea that an apostle of God, one who was unusually called, one who was incredibly endowed, that he himself, after years of following with Jesus, tremendous fruit, suffering for the sake of the gospel, he too experienced the same things that you do, that he looks back at his day and says, I didn't do the things I wanted to do, and look at the stupid things that I did today, things that... I." I, I hate doing, and, and yet I, I did them nevertheless. And it's the anguish that he has in wondering, how can he be so unspiritual, and what hope is there for him? Who will save me from this body of death? And so I hope you're comforted to know that what you're experiencing is common for everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. There are others of you who are not aware that, of this statement, and you are not so much anguished, but you assume you're just fine because you have been able to live blissfully unaware of self. And so you look in the mirror and say, mirror, mirror who, on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And your mirror still says, I guess it's you. And yet, for those who struggle with that reality, who live as if there is something inherently superior in the person who is a Christian, as if it, it, it rests in ourselves, we have to ask ourselves this question. Why is it that the most common reason given by those who reject the gospel is not because they find the gospel defective in some way, but because they don't see the difference that the gospel makes in the people that they know who claim to believe the gospel. And so it's important to recognize that what Paul experiences is not just okay for some, and some people do it, and there's permission, and one day they'll become good like us. But it is the common experience. In one sense, you might say it is the, the normal Christian life to continue to deal with those kinds of, of struggles and to look back with that kind of angst with the question, who will save me from this body of death? Because we look at our lives and they're not what we, we wish they would be. 
But yet there's another dimension that is important for us to consider as well. Because while I want to make sure that everyone is clear that Romans 7 is the common experience of every Christian, there are some who come to that understanding or some who will hear me saying that who will then live in Romans chapter 7 as if that's all there is. And while it is the common experience for all, that sense of failure is not all there is for those who are Christians. Because Paul asks the question, who will save me from this body of death? And then he immediately answers his own question, but thanks be to God. And he makes another statement and he moves immediately into here in Romans chapter 8, where we see this declaration of liberation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's saying, answering his question, who will deliver me? And the answer is God. Thanks be to God, because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The fact that we feel this angst, the fact that we feel the weight of our sin, the fact that we often feel like failures is not the defining of who we are, nor is it the direction of our, our lives. It's an experience that we need to embrace and recognize, which enables us or requires us to become humble before God and to depend upon God. But it is not the end of the story. It is not the end of any story, and it's not the end of your story. Paul declares that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when he speaks of that, there, it is a pregnant promise. Because when we think of condemnation, we, we rightly think of kind of in the end, the, the judgment. There is no death sentence on you. So when you come to the end of your mortal life, you will not be condemned eternally away from God into, into hell. Nor do we say condemnation in thinking that even though our sins warrant death, there's no condemnation for you. You're not under a death sentence. God is not going to put you to death because of your sins. And those things are very important for us. They give comfort. But there, there's actually important to recognize the, the word now there. It's not just there's no condemnation whenever or ultimately, but there is now no condemnation now. In other words, you live free now. Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce says that this word condemnation also carries with it the kind of the, the implication of what he calls penal servitude. And, and here, listen to what he says. There is no reason why those who are in Christ Jesus should go on doing penal servitude as though they had never been pardoned and liberated from the prison house of sin. And, and what he's addressing there are Christians who, recognizing their own shortcomings, their failures, the angst that Paul expresses in Romans 7, and the promise that is made here that, okay, in the end, I won't be condemned. And yet they live in relationship to God day by day as if they have to serve God in order to pay the debt that their sin had accrued, knowing that they'll never work hard enough or long enough to be able to fully pay it. But they are becoming essentially indentured servants in bondage to God. But what Paul says is there's no condemnation. There is no 
penal servitude. There is, there, you're not sentenced at all if you are in Christ Jesus. And the inevitable question is, and how are you in Christ Jesus? And the answer to that is, it is by believing in God's gift of sending his own son who took your place, paid the penalty, died, and then rose again in order to set us free. It's nothing more than simply realizing that is the hope and that is where you're going to place your trust, not in your own labors nor in your own angst and your own worry. And in Romans chapter 8, in the verses that we're looking at this morning, these, this first part of Romans chapter 8, Paul goes on and he shows us what God has done to set us free and tells us what God has given us in order that we may grow in grace and the enjoyment of that freedom. And, and so as we look first and foremost, we, we begin with what has God done to set us free? And we see that God has given us his son and we are set free through the work that he has done. Now, one of the things that's important for us to also note is this, is Romans chapter 8 is, is really a, a chapter of the Holy Spirit. It's a chapter about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is introduced to us here in, in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life, the Spirit of life is a, a nickname, the, the reference to, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so he's introduced to us in, in Romans chapter 8 to in all of Romans up to this point, the Holy Spirit, there's been allusions to the Holy Spirit made twice, one in chapter 1, one in chapter 5. Two times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Romans 1 through chapter 7. In Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 21 times. This is very much a chapter about the Holy Spirit. And what we see here is that there is a law of the spirit of life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of life. And there are laws or principles that are associated with, with the work of the Holy Spirit. And, the, and then there are also laws that are in play in this world that every one of us has been subject to at some time or another. And every person in the world is, apart from Christ, subject to these laws, what Paul is calling the law of sin and death. And these two principles are in contrast. And Paul gives us characteristics of, of, these, um, of, these, of, of these contrasts. He talks about the, the law of sin and death. And he's just talking about the law itself that God has given to us. And the law exposes our sin. The law is like those little capsules, those little pills that you chew when you go to the dentist office and you, know, you chew on them and then you, you know, rinse out and then it still shows... Where, where the plaque is, where, where it's been misbrushing. The law comes in and it exposes the reality of sin in our lives. And, and one of the things that we saw previously in our study is the law not only reveals a sin, the law provokes sin. So when the law says don't do this or do this, it actually provokes a response in us that is sin. We understand it psychologically like this. I will say to every one of you here, do not think, do not think of a pink elephant riding on a tricycle on a high wire. Do not do it. And the fact that I told you not to do that, not to think of that particular image, what do our minds inevitably do? We automatically begin thinking of that. Now, that's not sin. 
That's an illustration of the principle that when the law is given to the person apart from Christ, it works in us to something of an attitude or a mindset that automatically is antithesis to what the law itself does. Even if we outwardly obey it, we in our minds, in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our orientation, we, we chafe, we rebel, we, it, it, it provokes sin within us. And the law reminds us that those who have sin are under judgment, deserve condemnation, they're under a death sentence. The law does all of those things. And so therefore, that's why it says that it's a, a law of, of sin and death. But Paul then says, as he supports the statement, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the law of the spirit of life creates a new principle that supersedes the old. While we remain in the same flesh, something new begins to take place. And what he describes in verses two and three, he says this, is that the Holy Spirit administers the work of God in order that we might be set free. Look at what verse two says. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And what he's saying is the Holy Spirit is at work, and the Holy Spirit is taking the work of Christ. God sent his son who died for us, and he is applying that to us. And so the Holy Spirit begins doing what the law could not do. And so as we, we think about that, what is, what is he saying? First of all, we need to understand what the law is. The law is the perfect holy standard of God. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect and is holy. The fact that I might chafe about the law, the fact that I might not like the law at times, doesn't make the law bad. It just reveals what's wrong within me. But the law is the perfect standard of God. But what the passage says is what the law couldn't do because of the weakness of the flesh, not because of the law, but because of the weakness of our, our inability. Perhaps the, the best way for me to illustrate this is, is with kind of a, uh, kind of adapting a somewhat of a farcical illustration that I've heard someone use before. Just imagine for a moment that we live in a weird kind of culture and I have done something to transgress the law and the only way that I'm able to secure my freedom from it is that if I perform a solo singing. I told you it's a stupid illustration, but you'll get, it'll, you'll get there in a moment. There's a problem. Those of you who have sat near me in church know that I can't carry a tune. Now, I do point out to some people, I can hit the notes, several of them in any given song, just never in a row. I just can't do it. Now, let's assume Jerry and Tim Seaman and Molly, they, out of the kindness in their own heart, they decide they're going to try to help me. And so they come and they instruct me in all of the principles of music, and they teach me what those little scratchy things with the lines are. And one of them goes out and rents a tux, you know, so that I can look the parts. And, you know, they explain all of the principles behind this. And then 
think that I can still perform. The problem is not in the law of music. The problem is in my flesh, in my lack of ability. They can teach me everything, but I'm still not able to do it. That's the weakness of my flesh, the weakness of, of my body. Likewise, is if there's not a problem with the law or the holiness of God, the problem is in us. Now imagine in this situation as the day of my condemnation was approaching. That somehow Jeff Field or Van Stallings was said, move over, I will wear your tux, I will perform. See, they can sing and they can nail it. And in this weird little culture, well, somebody standing in for me did what was required of the law in order to set me free. I can't do it. Teaching me the law doesn't enable me to do it. Teaching me how to do it isn't going to enable me to do it. But someone who is able to has taken my place. And what this passage is saying is that's exactly what God has done. He could have continued to send the prophets. He can send the teachers. He can write letters. He can teach us more and more about his holiness and what he expects of us in life. But we just cannot do it because we are already inf infected by sin. And so therefore, because we could not do what the law demands because our flesh is weakened, God sent his son in the likeness of our sinful flesh. And it's, uh, I, I'm just fascinated with just how packed Paul has in here because he doesn't say he didn't come in the likeness of our flesh because that might kind of imply that Jesus wasn't real it just kind of appeared to be real and he didn't come in uh, you know uh, in the flesh merely in in the flesh because that might you know, imply that he was sinful but Paul being very precise here says God sent his own son who came in the likeness of our sinful flesh. In other words, he came and he was every bit like us in our humanity, except that his nature was not stained with sin like ours is. And so he was pure, but he was exactly like us, except that he was without sin. He came, he bore the punishment we deserve, he died on the cross, and then he rose again, conquering death. And what we're told here is this is what God has done, and the Holy Spirit applies the merit of Christ to us. He brings it to our mind. He tells us this is what's been done for you. He gives us the gift, we're told elsewhere, the ability to believe, and in believing, trusting in Christ, we are declared righteous in Christ who was condemned for us, bore our record, and yet he conquered it victoriously. This is the story of the gospel, and this is what God has done for us. And so we want to know, what does it mean to walk with God? How do I get right with God? There's nothing you can do except for accept what God has done. I love the way John Bunyan put it in one of his poems. To run and work the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and then gives us wings. God has done something for us. He has sent his son. And because he has sent his son who was condemned in our place, there is therefore now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. For anyone who is believing in Christ, there is now no condemnation. But then we read even more. Because verses 5 through 17 
Paul tells us that God didn't just do something for us, but he gave something to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And there are four distinct gifts that he gives to those who are followers of Christ to enable us to continue to live and to grow in the grace that is ours, to grow in the freedom that belongs to us. The first thing that we see is that he, he gave to us a, a new mindset. In verses um, 5 and through 8, we see two, two different mindsets that are contrasted with one another. One is the mindset of the person without Christ, and one is the mindset of the person with Christ. And, and as we look at that, we see some of the characteristics of the person. Verse 6 tells us for the, to, to set the mind on the flesh, which is the person without Christ, is, is death. And then it picks up again, and and the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and this is verse 7, for it does not submit to God's laws, it's hostile to God, it chafes at God's laws, indeed it cannot submit to God's laws. And then in verse 8 it tells us, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Not that they're trying, but the person is looking to themselves, the person who thinks that somehow through their own performance, their own merit, or their own suffering, whatever it is, that somehow they will live in a way that pleases God, they cannot. It's important to mark this down. This is not something that I'm saying. This is not something that, you know, Reformed Christians or something that John Calvin coined. This is what God is saying through the Apostle Paul, through the Scripture that is breathed by God. The person who is only in the flesh, the person who is trusting on their own work and their religiosity cannot, not will not, cannot, it's impossible for them to please God. On contrast, the person who is in the spirit, which doesn't change us physiologically, we still have the same flesh, but now we've moved a mindset from looking to ourselves to looking to God's gift, but we see at the second part of verse 6, but to set the mind on the spirit, the characteristics of that mindset is life and peace. The two things that everyone desires, is longing for, and striving for. It belongs to those who have been reconciled to God by believing in his provision for us of Christ and then turning our mindset to him. And the reality is, is the mindset, what Paul was telling us, is the mindset determines everything. Think of sailing. The scriptures tell us that the same rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. In other words, every one of us faces the same storms in this life, the same wind that blows, blows on those who are believers and unbelievers alike. The difference is not an issue of the environment that we live in. The difference is our attitude, our orientation, our mindset to this life. It's where you set your sails that will determine where you're going. And the one whose mindset is of the spirit 
of life and of peace will set their sails with the wind, going where God wants them to, where the person who is of the flesh will do whatever they want to and find struggle in this life, because occasionally they'll be with the wind, but they'll also set their, their sails in the direction that they want to go, even if the wind is not going there, and they will find struggles, difficulty, hardship, anger, bitterness in this life. And so God gives to those in, uh, who are in Christ by faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit, it gives us a, a new mindset. And so therefore, we continually remind ourselves, what am I resting in? Am I trusting in God? Am I trusting in God? Is, is God my co-pilot or is God the pilot? Am I riding with God? Am I going where God's going? Or am I trying to make God go where I want him to go? The mindset there that submits to God and recognizes God is sovereign and God is good and God loves you experiences the peace and life. Whereas the rest of the mindset they're either unbelievers in the flesh or the believers are acting like they're in the flesh and therefore they experience the angst of Romans 7. I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do and I feel miserable about it. We see not only that there is a, a new mindset, but we see again in, in verses 19, uh, excuse me, 9, excuse me, 19, that would be next week, that's campers. Um, verse 9, there is a new nature that the Holy Spirit makes in those of those who are in Christ. Verse 9, you, however, um, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, first, I need to say this, you know, doctrinal alert. Every person who is in Christ has the Holy Spirit. If, if you come from a tradition that tells you otherwise that people get saved and then you get the Holy Spirit... Or if you doubt what I'm saying, mark these verses here and go back and read it over and over and over again and come back and tell me how there's some way that you can be in Christ and not have the Holy Spirit according to what Paul says. Every person who is in Christ has a spirit. Now, it's part because you can't have Christ without the Spirit who, who makes you alive and whatever, but that's a whole not, it's not in this text, so I won't go on that, that hobby horse. But we need to recognize that if you are trusting in Christ, no matter how you may feel at the moment, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, who is at work within you. And if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you because you have Christ, then you have Christ who is alive within you. And then what Paul is saying here, in to shorten up kind of what he's saying, is if the Holy Spirit is in you, and you have him if you're in Christ, then Christ is in you. Ultimately, what's going to happen is your new nature in Christ is going to begin to show that you are Christ. In other words, the nature of Christ will become more and more evident in your life. That's what Paul is saying in these verses, because he's given you not only a new attitude, but he's given you a, a new um, mindset, a new, a, a, a new nature. But that begs the questions. Why don't I experience more of that? Why do we experience this Romans 7 thing? Not just occasionally, but as, as part of our common day-to-day -day life. It's because we're growing and we have not yet arrived. Two illustrations that I think will be helpful. Well, I hope they're helpful. They were helpful to me. 
One is, as I was humbled this week thinking of my golf game. I didn't actually play, but I was asked about it, and so I started thinking about my golf game. And why do I play that ridiculous game? It's because every once in a while, three or four times over 18 holes, out of my 190 shots, I hit it just right. I hit it the way it's supposed to be done. I hit it and it couldn't be done better. And I get a taste of the way things ought to be and I get the delusion of maybe I can do it. Now, if I committed myself to doing this regularly, the three shots would become six shots and the six would become 12 and the 190 would come down under 100 and eventually I would be able to shoot in the 70s. If I committed myself and over time, I would see that reality. The fact is, every one of us struggles with our flesh, with our sin nature, even though we have the new nature. But as we give ourselves to it, and we'll see the next principle in, in what, exa- what it is that we do, we will begin to see more of the nature of Christ emerging in our lives. Because if you have Christ, you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you have Christ in you. And therefore, that new nature will begin to emerge. Second illustration is this. My favorite Disney movie, I think, is The Ugly Dachshund, which doesn't come off very much, uh, but I liked it as a kid. I have had five Great Danes in my life, and so I can watch that movie and see um, that. And I have another one. I get another one, but Carolyn won't let me. Um, She's not in here. So if you see Carolyn, tell her how desperately mean she is for not letting me have another great day. But that's a whole other issue. And we'll go to counseling some other time or, or I may need some place to sleep if she's watching right now. But anyway, that's... Uh, but the story there, the ugly dachshund taken from the ugly duckling is this, is that people that raised um, I mean, now other uh, dachshunds somehow get themselves a Great Dane, a Great Dane puppy. Great Dane puppies, when they're, they're little, they're they're, they're fairly, fairly small uh, early on. I, when we moved here and we had a Great Dane, we had to put our Great Dane in a shelter and ultimately into foster uh, care for, and apparently there's a lot of Great Danes in foster care because people get them and then they give them up and saying, we didn't know they were gonna get big. It's a Great Dane. They let these people drive and vote. But anyway, that's a whole other issue. So in the movie, the Great Dane thinks he's a dachshund. And if you've ever had a Great Dane, you know that's not a stretch. The Great Danes don't know they're big. They're lap dogs. Great Danes that we had when I was a kid, I remember people come over, sit on the sofa, and the Great Dane came over and plopped right on somebody's lap. Just freaked them out. I mean, it's, and the Great Dane through this movie acts like a dog, and, and trying to act like a dachshund creates all sorts of chaos until one day when there is a threat in the family and at the house, the Great Dane's nature came out and the Great Dane became ferocious and of a size and then scared away those who are the burglars. The reality is, while we struggle in this life, while you may not see enough of Christ in your life, you have a new nature within you. And in time and through consistency, that nature will grow in you, but it will emerge, it will come out, it will become evident who you are and what you are as a child of God. We see that there's not only a new 
mindset. We see that there is a new nature. We see that there is a new obligation, for lack of a better word. We pick up here in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. So maybe there's a new debt, but we're obligated. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who led by the Spirit of God. So, in other words, when we were sinners, we had a debt. We had a debt that leads us to death. We then owed our flesh. That's who we live for. The flesh dictated everything we did. We see it in addictions because your body, your mind says you do this just like any idol, but the flesh, the flesh basically says, every, which it becomes an idol, always says this, you will pay me, you will feed me, or you will have hell to pay. And so those of you who have caffeine addictions and you don't get your caffeine and you have that headache or that you kind of feel that with well, the flesh and the spiritual life is the same way. Our flesh says, you have to have this, you have to have that. The natural desires that are inordinate, out of order, and, and it says that you either do what your na- instinct, what you desire, what you feel at the moment, or you feel like you're gonna die, that is because there's a debt, an obligation to it. But now, those who are in Christ, you don't owe that. You don't owe your body, you don't owe your flesh, you don't owe it anything. It doesn't own you. God has set you free. He purchased you with the blood of Christ and he has now set you free. And so you belong to God, but at the same time, in God you are free. And so therefore the obligation is no longer to the flesh, But in a sense, it's to God, and he says, here's how you meet the obligation. Two things. You put to death the sin or the deeds of the flesh. In other words, when you feel them, when you feel that desire, you say no. And then confess the desires to God, asking for his mercy and his grace, the ability to forsake whatever it is that the temptation is in your life. And second, you're able to do that and always do this with the dying to the flesh. It's called mortification, for those of you who are looking for the big word. And then you remind yourself of the gospel. That's what Paul's doing throughout this letter, but even in this particular verse. You're not a debtor. Why not? Because Jesus paid the price. You belong to God because he set you free. You are no longer a debtor to the flesh because now you belong to God. And so you die saying no to the temptations of the flesh and remind yourself of the truth of the gospel. You're no longer a debtor to that because God has set you free in Christ Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. And so it's, it's saying no and then reminding yourself of the truth. No and reminding yourself of the truth. That's the obligation that you now have. You owe your flesh nothing, but you owe God and you owe yourself to grow into godliness. And here's how you do it. Say no and remind yourself of the cross. And with that, we see not only do we have a, a new uh, mindset, a new nature, a new obligation, but we have a new identity that the Spirit applies. And we see this coming on in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so there's a couple of things here that are important that we, that we recognize. First, he says, if you are in Christ, you are all sons of God. Now, this is not some attempt at gender neutrality. 
What is threatened here is incredibly radical and it's far more radical than what is being attempted in our culture today. There is no gender confusion here. It's actually addressing something and making it right. See, in the ancient days, women, daughters had no rights. Now, some daughters were born into families where they had a kind and benevolent father who loved their daughters and was kind and would set them up, but there was no obligation, there was no cultural requirement for that to happen. Daughters had no rights. The best you could hope for is that your dad would arrange to have you married off to somebody else who was kind and who was loving. But there were no rights whatsoever. Only the sons had rights, and particularly the firstborn, or the one who had the status of the firstborn son. But all, all sons had rights, particularly the firstborn. What this is saying, in a, to, and think about it in an ancient Middle East culture, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, whether you are male or female, you now are sons. It's not confusion, it's a status. Whether you are male or female, you have the rights of son. You have the status of son. And every privilege that belongs to the first son is now yours. We're told that we have been adopted as sons. Now, again, in the ancient Middle East in uh, culture, according to you know, commentator F.F. F. Bruce, there were times that when somebody was adopted in that culture, they might actually have a favored status over the person who uh, was born into the family. Not always, but at times. Simply because they were chosen. A wealthy person saw somebody and said, you know, you're an orphan, whatever, I like what I see in your son, and I'm going to make you my son. And they have, they have every right, they have every privilege, and sometimes have even more affection. It, it really is the, the, the living of the old joke. You know, the kid finds out that he's adopted. His siblings, the one that told him, older siblings, said, you're adopted, and, you know, trying to make him feel bad. And the kid just says, well, all that tells me is mom and dad chose me, but they're stuck with you. Um, the fact is, if you are in Christ by faith, you are adopted. But the, 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 the really amazing thing about the gospel is this, is to have faith in Christ means that you're born again. You're born of God. You were born. And so those who are in Christ, you are born of God. So he is yours by spiritual birth. And then he goes through the legal process of adopting you. There's no one that can say that you don't belong to God if you are in Christ because you are born again and you are adopted. And you therefore have every right of the son, the privilege of the one who is the father. And going along with that, and we cry out, Abba, which is the Aramaic word for daddy. It's not just a matter of saying, Okay, God is now my father, and, you know, um, there is an intimacy applied here. And what is really radical here is that the, the Jews didn't then and do not now use that word Abba. Not that they don't recognize it, but the reason, and, and really there's, there's something to be commended here, because they recognize God is holy, and God is, deserves all reverence. They wouldn't dare use a word that is that intimate and, and close. They want to recognize the transcendence of God, and, and we would do well to learn that. But that doesn't change the reality. We now have the right. Jesus, who used this word, says you have the right and you ought to call, recognize God and relate to him as your daddy. There's an intimacy there. And if you are sons, heir, you are also heirs. Heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you. Because there is now no condemnation. And Paul begins this magnificent piece with a declaration of liberation. And then he begins to explain to us how it happened so that we can understand and be rooted, not just, okay, somebody told me something nice, but we understand what God has done to meet all justice and to meet all compassion and to demonstrate his love. 
in sending of his son. And then in addition to doing that and setting us free, he gives to us these four things in order that we may continue to grow in that. May God enable us to recognize that we live and experience Romans 7, but may we live and experience more of Romans 8. Father, pray, we pray that you would be at work within us. Root these truths deep within us that we might find hope in them. And then may you work your life out in us to the glory of your name. We pray in Christ. Amen. Please stand and sing.